Welcome to No Ordinary Ordinary Women, Women, the podcast where two ordinary broads chat about extraordinary women, the good, the bad, and and the bad shit crazy. Hi, I'm Lynn. Hi, I'm Rose. How are you doing today, Rose? Good. How are you? I'm great. Good. That's good to hear. (laughs) You look amazing. I know. I know. I get that all the time. (laughs) Your boobs are looking big. (laughs) Like, when does that ever change? (laughs) Yeah. I know. I put on makeup and I, like, actually blue dry my hair today for the first time in, I don't know, six months. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because we're... We are live, not live, but we are on YouTube now, y'all. I'm going to post the link tomorrow. Um, we've already posted three things today, so I didn't want to post one more thing. But we are on YouTube now, so you can watch our entire podcast, because I know you guys all want to see our beautiful faces. <laughs> um, I don't know about that, but... <laughs> well, you know, whatever it is. So um, I'm, sure, I'm sure our YouTube channel will have all men followers, because our podcast has mostly women, because all the boys are going to be like, oh my God, this Oh my God, look at those dolling. boobs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not showing my boob, y'all. So you can just un- unsubscribe right now. <laughs> well, we'll give her a few drinks. <laughs> we'll see yeah. what happens. If you bring me some beads. <laughs> She'll do a lot for money. Yeah, money, money I will. Beads, no. So, Rose, I'm going to tell you a pretty long oh, story wait. today. Hold on. You want to talk about our, our, oh, cocktail? our cocktail? It's really our good cocktail. today. Lynn yeah. did a great job. I, one of my originals, ladies and gentlemen. I've already posted a picture of it. It is, um, it was blueberry. Vi- we named it the blueberry spring. Blueberry spring. Blueberry, blueberry. blueberry spring. spring. Um, it is muddled blueberry, muddled and muddled pineapple. And then I took blueberry vodka, um, absolute vanilla, and Cointreau. And I added them together, shook them in the shaky, shaky, shaky. With ice, and then I poured, strained them into a martini glass with ice, and served them with a lime wedge. And she gave herself more than she gave me. I absolutely did not. Don't be a bitch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't, but it took us so long to get everything set up today that I'm half knockered, schnockered by the time. <laughs> yeah, we get started. Our drinks so are I, almost completely gone. If I so. start slurring, it's because of Rose. Yeah. So, just so you know. It's because Lynn drank all the drank all of mine and hers. I did not drink all of yours. Mm-hmm. But I might share you mine, but I probably won't. You might share me yours? I'll share me and put you above. <laughs> so share this you is mine. how it's going to go, y'all. So <laughs> FYI. So also, we did post this week, first time ever, posting our um, some of the clips that we um, that Rose put together for from last week's first recording on video. So let us know how you like those. We've had a couple comments already, which is exciting. People saying that they loved it. So we do love that feedback. So We do. Yeah. It's amazing. Yes, ma'am. We love attention. Yeah, we're attention whores, without a doubt. <laughs> without a doubt. Even though Rose is a clown with no class. <laughs> Every time I watch that video, it still makes me laugh. I know. <laughs> it is funny. Okay. So today, I've been wanting to do this person for a while. And um, I, you know, because I never listened in school, I really had no idea. I knew that this person was, like, known for being extraordinary but i had no idea why or what she did yeah not even a clue and so i can't say that anymore because i know an awful lot about her now so today i'm going to talk to you about the life of anna eleanor roosevelt oh she was a remarkable woman whose impact would extend far beyond her privileged upbringing wait i got a i got a tidbit of information one of my residents 
She's Eleanor Roosevelt? Is or No. Um, one of my residents was the dresser, dressmaker for Eleanor Roosevelt. Really? Yeah. That's so freaking she cool. She was like a famous like designer, dressmaker. Oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah, she just passed away a couple years ago. but. Aww. Or last year. That's so amazing. Yeah, it was. Her life was very interesting. Oh, that's so cool. So she was like, um, really good. Like knew her really well. Was really good friends with her. That's amazing. I just, you know, and I, we see these people as like way in our history. Yeah, right. But, but I mean, not. she was, you know, well. And the next sentence will tell you when she got, you know, like when her life started. But and then, you know, she was alive up until you know my parents were alive. So it's very kind of it's kind of cool. Oh, when was she born? Oh, she was well, born oh, in um, 1884, and she died in. Hang on, I just scroll down. I have 20 pages of notes, y'all. Um, she died in 1962, so it was before I was born. But my parents. Okay, I might be wrong. It might be Jacqueline Kennedy. I'm thinking. Of. Oh my God, Rose. <laughs> because that would be oh, that would be too old for my. Like, my resident dressed her when she was in the White House. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. It must have been Jackie O. Yeah, it must have been Jackie O. And I feel like, too, Eleanor Roosevelt also was very simple. I can't imagine she had somebody that she made... She had, like, a dresser. Well, she probably yeah. still had people make dresses for her because she yeah. was a Roosevelt. I mean, but... I'm very simple, and I have tons of people designing clothes for me. Oh, do you? Yeah. Like, Target and... Old Navy. Costco. Costco. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, y'all. Okay. So, Eleanor was born in New York on October 11th, 1884, a time when the streets sounded the clatter of horses and hooves and elegant carriages. Oh, that must have been so cool. I know. So, that's how, I mean, that's the life she started with. Yeah. And then she lived to the 60s, which is pretty Well, yeah, that's cool. really crazy. Yeah. I have a lot of residents like that, too. Where it's, that's like such a life. Yeah. Like such a, oh my, the times, like the way they change, just incredible. So, I have the worst hangnail ever. Mm. Okay. So Anna preferred Keep, to go um, sticking your hand in your mouth on on the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Anna Anna preferred to go by her middle name, Eleanor, obviously. Eleanor dedicated herself to making life better for ordinary men, women, and children, but her own life was anything but ordinary. She was the wife and later widow of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, and she broke the mold and changed people's ideas of how a first lady should behave. Oh girl. Whoop whoop. Which yeah. probably isn't, like, compared to how they, well, the presidency now is, like, a fucking joke. But Oh, yeah, but, I mean, at least Michelle Obama, you know, she was I mean, classy. she was a lady, yeah. Yeah. And so were the women before her, right? Yeah, say. no, I mean, I don't... Like, Republican or Democrat, I think mm-hmm. all the, the yeah, I mean, I first ladies were up yeah. until that last one. She didn't do much. She didn't say much. She didn't do any, like, did she have a platform at all? I don't think she did any. Like, I don't know what her thing was. Like, Michelle Obama is obesity. It wasn't wasn't advertised. No. I don't know. What is... Jill Biden's is probably education because she's a teacher. Probably. Yeah. I don't know what her platform was. Okay. So today, Eleanor is remembered as one of the 20th century's most admired people and as as a determined campaigner for world peace and civil rights. Eleanor was born into a world of extraordinary privilege. Eleanor belonged to the influential and wealthy Roosevelt family who were deeply connected to the highest level of society. So can I tell you a really cool thing? So um, a family member, I'm not going to get into any 
specific details, but I have a family member who Your does. Mom? No, it's not. Your my dad? Mom. No. Who <laughs> <laughs> does um, spa type treatments? Not even oh, okay. what they are. And she has very. It's a very specific treatment, and so she like does happy endings. Huh? Like happy endings? No, Rose. <laughs> no. And she, one of the Roosevelts was one of her clients. And oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And so when she would come in, so she lived like upstate or something like that, or maybe she was in Connecticut then. I don't know. But anyway, she would, when she would come into the city to treat this Roosevelt, oh no, never mind. You're going to have to cut that. It's a Rockefeller instead. So <laughs> I just remembered. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting off great here, Lynn. <laughs> oh my god! Because I stayed in her apartment. We think everyone cut that on both. <laughs> okay. Oh my god! Never mind. I take it all back. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to start. Born into a world of extraordinary privilege, Eleanor belonged to the influential and wealthy Roosevelt family, who were deeply connected to the highest levels of society. Her parents, Anna and Elliot, were not just part of New York's high society, but they embodied the pinnacle of it. In fact, by the time Eleanor turned 16, her uncle Theodore Roosevelt had already become president of the United States. Despite her privileged status, Eleanor often felt like an outsider in her own world. She was, she was a quiet and serious child, nicknamed Granny by her mother because of her old-fashioned sensibility and plain looks. That's not nice. Isn't that sad? <laughs> We have, I have a cousin fuck? that we call Nana because he's like the ultimate like planner and oh my gosh warrior. Like <laughs> if we want to do something, they're like, oh, just ask Nana. And it's it's a man. Yeah. And they call him Nana all the time. It's just like it's his name. And so my cousins be like, oh, you guys. He's like really good at Disney. They go to Disney like at least oh, once a year. Yeah. And so she was my my other cousin, his sister-in-law said to me. Are you guys, your guys are going to Disney? This was when the kids were little. I was like, yeah. She goes, ask Nana. He'll plan the whole trip for you. Ask Nana. <laughs> so, but he's I might not. call Nana. <laughs> he's not playing. Yeah, he's amazing. He will give you like an idea. He's amazing. So while the other women in her family had a natural beauty, Eleanor considered herself the ugly duckling. That's just so sad. sad. I know. She felt as though she was tall and awkward. She was aware of her mother's disappointment in her appearance. Jeez. Yeah. She compensated for her perceived lack of beauty with an intense intellectual curiosity. Determined to read, despite being forbidden to do so in bed, she hid books under her mattress and woke up at the crack of dawn to read as much as she could. However, she wrote at the age of 14 that one's prospects in life were not, on, were not totally dependent on physical beauty. She was quoted as saying, no matter how plain a woman may be, if truth and loyalty are stamped upon her face, all will be attracted to her. Which is Wow. At 14? Yeah. At 14, she That's wrote impressive. that. That's impressive. That's crazy. I couldn't write that now. I, yeah, me either. <laughs> me either. <laughs> Eleanor's parents, while wealthy and influential, held the belief that a, the privilege should assist the less fortunate. At the tender age of five, she went with her father and witnessed the reality of homeless boys in the city. He wanted her to see that not everyone had her family's Oh, lifestyle. well, that's good. I know. Her father explained that these boys had to fend for themselves, lacking anyone to rely on but their own resourcefulness. From that moment on, Eleanor carried a huge awareness that while she had plenty, others were not as fortunate. And I think that's so cool because, like, I know my dad did that. When, you know, my parents were very involved in um, this nonprofit that kind of went through our church called Pronto 
And I remember going on Saturdays and helping my dad, like, sort clothes that were donated. Yeah. And we would deliver meals to families. And I remember all that. Well, that's probably kid. why you're so, like, you have so much empathy. Yeah. I mean, I definitely do. It's probably why I'm so poor. I was like, oh, this is where you're supposed to live? Anyway. <laughs> 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 on... on <laughs> My dad was probably we we weren't very we weren't very wealthy, but my dad was probably trying to show me that there was people worse off than me. But but Lynn's like to live like them. So. <laughs> Lynn's like this looks great. Yeah, this looks great. This looks great. People just right bring you food in. for free. <laughs> <laughs> on May nineteenth, eighteen eighty seven, two year old Eleanor was on the SS Britannic with her father, mother, and aunt Tissy when it collided with White Star Liner SS Celtic. She was lowered into a lifeboat. She and her parents were taken to the Celtic and returned to New York. After this traumatic event, she was afraid of ships and the sea the rest of her life. She was like, oh my no thank you to the water. That's just like my accident today. <laughs> On the SS. <laughs> yeah. The SS. Me and Eleanor have so much in common. What's, what's your car? Uh, GMC Acadia. The SS Arcadia? (laughs) (laughs) Someone hit me today. Someone backed into me. It's very traumatic. Is it better? Is your neck okay? No. I think I need to go to the hospital. (laughs) And the funny thing is, she works at the, like, spine and neck, the spine and neck place. Oh, does she really? Yeah, like, there's a spine and neck place. And I was like... That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, because you can't be like, oh, my neck. She would have, like, adjusted it right there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Nobody wants a neck injury, though, man. That's the worst. No, but as soon as, like, after it happened, like, it wasn't a big deal. Like, yeah. obviously, you saw the damage. It was it was minimal. But um, on the way over here, I was like, oh, my God, my back kind of hurt. Well, you start, like, evaluating everything in your head. But the thing about that kind of accident, it's not bad, but where it hit on your car, that there's no... Like, if it was your bumper, your bumper can take that. Impact. Right, yeah. But that side panel. Oh, is my gosh. It dent. just went, like, crunch. Yeah. You could hear it go. <laughs> I, I, for real, thought, I was like, oh, my God. My whole car is, like, smashed. <laughs> and it's just, like, a dent. <laughs> yeah. But they're going to have to replace it. Yeah. So Eleanor had two younger brothers, Elliot Jr. and Hall. H-A-L-L, Hall. She also had a half-brother. This is weird. Elliot Roosevelt Mann. So she had two brothers named Elliot. So she was like, hi, my name's Eleanor. This is my brother Elliot. This is my other brother Elliot. And her da- was her dad's <laughs> name Elliot? What the fuck? You don't know that. That's from an old show called The New Heart Show. No, he, he, there was two guys that he owned like an inn. And there was these two guys that worked at the inn. And he, uh, three guys. And he'd be like, hi, my name's Daryl. This is my brother Daryl. This is my other brother Daryl. No. Like, <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Um, anyway, so Elliot Roosevelt Mann um, was her half-brother, and he was born through an affair with Katie Mann, a servant employed by the family. Oh. And they just, like, brought him right on in. Come on. I mean, I guess that's good for him. Money and status, however, offered no shield against life's hardship, and tragedy stuck Eleanor's, st- stuck, struck Eleanor's childhood <laughs> more than once. In 1892, at the age of eight, she lost her mother to diphtheria. Aww. Less than a year later, in May of 1893, her brother Elliot Jr. also died from diphtheria. Oh, my God. Isn't that horrible? That is horrible. Her beloved father, already struggling with alcoholism, sent Eleanor and her three brothers to live with her grandmother what? while he sought treatment. I thought she only had two brothers. Well, he, oh, this was before he, the other one died? Yeah, the brother died after, after he went to okay. with her grandmother. Two years later... 
her father jumped from her window <gasps> of the sanitarium during a fit of alcohol withdrawal. He survived the fall, but he died from a seizure, leaving Eleanor orphaned at the tender age of 10. Oh, no. Yeah. Before her father died, That's he asked so her to cool. act as a mother toward Hall, her other brother. And it was requested that she made good upon the rest of Hall's life. Eleanor doted on Hall, and when he enrolled at the Groton School, which was a prep school in Groton, Massachusetts, in 1907, she accompanied, accompanied him as a chaperone. While he was attending Groton, she wrote him almost daily, but always felt a touch of guilt that Hall had not had a fuller childhood. Isn't that sad? So how much younger was he? Um, uh, I don't think I said... He was younger. That's all it says. It doesn't say. I didn't look into when he was um, when he was born. Um, Did you do any research on this? No. Rose? <laughs> 25 pages. I know. I know you did a lot. That's why I said it. <laughs> Punch in the face. She took pleasure in his brilliant performance at school and was proud of his many academic accomplishments, Aww. which included a master's degree in engineering from Harvard. Oh, good for him. Yeah. She remained under her grandmother Mary's care and was well-educated by private, tutor, private tutors until the age of 15 when she was sent to Allenswood, a school for girls in England, to complete her education. It was there that she encountered Marie Sovestra. 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 I got to... her lesbian I, lover? I did it. Sovestra. Rose, I didn't say anything about a lesbian. I don't need to know about your fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> The, she was the French headmistress of the school. Mad, Madame Sylvestre, Sylvestre, I, can't, I don't want, like I did it phonetically, but I don't feel like I'm saying it right. Sylvestre. You can look it up. Took Eleanor under her wing. They had a lengthy discussions about politics and world affairs in the school library. Mm-hmm. Sure. Eleanor would read, later attribute Madame's quiet encouragement and guidance as one of the most influential forces in her youth life. Aww. At age 18, Eleanor returned to New York at her grandmother's request to make her social debut. Oh. She was not excited about this. She didn't want to leave school. She would have loved the opportunity for further schooling or even to attend college. But her grandmother believed that it was time for her to enter the marriage market. So was like when you looked at pictures of her, was she like plain or was that just... She was just, she was like simple looking. She wasn't ugly at all. I don't think she was ugly. She has kind of, she has kind of weird teeth. Like her teeth are a little bit buckish, maybe a little bit and like separated. But she, I don't think she was ugly. Yeah. I mean, she was just very simple. You know, she didn't wear makeup. Like you or like me? Simple like Christina. That's so funny. She called me the other day and she's like, Rosie, you have had Dairy Queen before. <laughs> when we talked about Dairy Queen, oh, yeah. was like, she's like, when grandma would take us to the mall, she would have coupons for Dairy Queen and she would, that's where we would eat. But she would never let us get ice cream, which is probably why you don't remember it. Because oh, it was just she didn't food. have a coupon for ice cream. Oh, my God. So she was hysterical. like, you're not getting ice cream. She was very, like, oh my God, that's you know, they were so very tight. funny. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, so Christina. Have had, we haven't talked about you in a while. I, I know. I throw you under the bus. Good job. No, she was just very plain. I appreciated so, that. Consequently, Eleanor's life for the next year became a whirlwind of parties, formal balls, designated to introduce young women to politi- to potential suitors, political suitors, potential suitors. <laughs> yeah, so all those, like, cotillions and all that stupid yeah, bullshit. Yeah, right. 
Why don't we and have those anymore? She was not happy about it. I wish we still had those. Do they have them? I don't know. I mean, we're not rich, so we don't know. But yeah, no, well, it's called a mud bog. <laughs> 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 well, this might sound like a fairy tale to some women. For Eleanor, it was unpleasant experience that served as a reminder of her perceived inadequacy compared to the conventional beauty of other women. Yeah, in the family. I can see that. Yeah, I mean, if she was like pretty simple, she'd go to all those things, and she'd probably just. Which is awful, because if her mom didn't make her feel like that... Yeah, so for the rest of her life, she felt like she was ugly. Yeah, she would have felt... She, wa- she would have been fine. She, I would never call her ugly in a yeah, million years. That's really I mean, sad. I call some people ugly, but not her. No, I would never. My grandmother was like that. She didn't call us ugly, but she called us fat all the time. Oh, my God. It's so bad. I know. It's really bad. Ugh. She had a fresh sense of confidence in herself and her abilities. She became involved in a social ser- in social service work, jo- joined the Junior League, and taught at Rivington Street Settlement House. As we know, Eleanor's focus was not solely on finding a husband. She began embracing the philanthropic values instilled in her by her parents, teaching calisthenics and dance to the impoverished children of New York. Oh, Isn't that sweet? I, I mean, I think that's so cool coming from that kind of family yeah, and doing that. I need to instill that in my kids. Absolutely. It's so good to do it. Yeah. Um, fortunately, Eleanor did not remain entangled in the city's upper-class marriage circuit for long. Eleanor was riding a train one day to to Tivoli, New York, and met her fifth cousin once removed, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Delano? Delano. I always thought it was Delanor. I always thought it was Delanor, too. But But maybe because it's Eleanor. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. and it's so funny. Your mind automatically thinks Yeah, no, it's Delano. Um, The two began a secret correspondence and romance. They became engaged in November of 1903. Why'd they keep it secret? I don't know. I mean... Because they were cousins? Yeah, but I mean, the fifth cousin's once removed is pretty far down the... Chris is my fifth cousin once removed. No, he's not. He's your first cousin. Don't try and lie. (laughs) Your family tree doesn't (laughs) fork, bitch. We all know it. We're actually siblings. (laughs) (laughs) Franklin's mother, Sarah Ann Delano, was unhappy about the engagement. She made Franklin promise not to announce the engagement for at least a year. She secretly hoped the relationship would end before the announcement. Or Why? at least she would do everything she could to end that motherfucker. Why? She didn't she didn't like her. I don't I guess maybe because she was plain. I don't know. She did not like her. And so back then she's like once they get married or they announce the marriage and they have it, like once they, she, it's they, over. we're done. They yeah, have, right. You know, they can't get yeah. divorced, not in this kind of family, right? So <gasps> she was pissed. So she took her son on a Caribbean cruise in 1904, hoping that the separation would put a kibosh on the romance. But Franklin remained determined. He was going to marry her. The wedding date was set to accommodate President Theodore Roosevelt, who was scheduled to be in New York City for the St. Patrick's Day parade, and agreed to give Eleanor away. Eleanor, you don't need somebody to give you away. You are your own person. Oh, if only, I bet she, you know, I wonder if she thought that to herself. Why do I need this? But she knew she had to for status or whatever. Yeah, right. Because I feel like she wouldn't have jived with that. Like, she would have been like, I'll walk down the aisle myself. But who gave me away? I, Joseph. Did Joseph, did Joseph walk you down the did aisle? Walk, no, he walked down with Leiko. Oh, Caniela, my brother. Mm, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So the couple were married on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, 1905. That's not St. Patrick's Day. In New York City. St. Patrick's Day was April 17th. Rose, come on. Is it March? Okay. Are you fucking with me? No, I'm not. March 17th. I always thought St. Patrick's Day was in April. I don't know. I don't know my month. Oh, wow. I'm still learning them. April begins with an A. March begins with an M. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
Kyle. <laughs> I'll get it eventually, Lynn. Okay, if you say so. Theodore Roosevelt's attendance at the ceremony was front page news. Of course. In the New York Times and other newspapers. You can imagine. I mean, like, everyone's like, it was all the rage. When asked for his thoughts on the Roosevelt-Roosevelt uh, Union, the president said, quote, it's a good thing to keep the name in the family. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so weird. Which I would have been like, awkward. But, I mean, they were fifth cousins. <laughs> and I actually looked at a chart to figure out, like, fifth cousin yeah. once removed. And it actually made sense to me, but I could never explain it. Like, oh, I, really? lo- I looked at the chart. Is it, it like, like, through first marriage? First cousin, second cousin. Like, they're not actually blood, So right? it's like... First, so it's like starts with grandma, grandpa, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's like first cousins are um, like the kids of the parents. Yeah. Right? The kids of the kids, right? The first cousins. The second cousins are the kids of the kids of those kids. And it like goes down. And then and then like if you are like – and it's like it's it's like a pyramid kind yeah. of. And then if you're like up here and then there's a cousin down here, like a parent and then a cousin, like a kid. Yeah. Like it's hard to explain. It's like that's the once removed. So like you're the cousin once removed or something. That's but I looked at it. Confusing. I was like, I could never. Because I was thinking, can yeah. I explain it? No. No. Absolutely I not. Didn't Look get it up, it. y'all. It's on Google. It's really nice little chart. <laughs> uh, never could I ever explain it. Um, it's It reminds me of when I was taking statistics. So, um, yeah. So uh, the couple spent... A preliminary honeymoon of one week at Hyde Park. That summer, they went on their formal honeymoon, which was... Yes, Rose. Hawaii. No. I don't know. They went to Europe for guess how long? Three months. Yep. Are you serious? (laughs) (laughs) Three-month tour of Europe. Of course. Oh, my God. Yeah. Fuck, that would be amazing. Oh, my God. So Hyde Park is um, north of New York City. I looked it up. And it's like, um, I'd say it's about an hour. So it's right below Kingston. So Kingston, yeah. you take this road to go straight up to Kingston from New York City. And it's right below Kingston. So it's probably an hour out of the city. I think I've heard and of it's it. it's right like, on the Hudson. People have, like, rich people. Yes. Like, in shows yes, or something. There's, I think there's Roosevelt's. There's um, Vanderbilt's. There's many wealthy families that have homes in Hyde Park. Steins. It's right on the Hudson. Hudson. Pontillos. The, the Pontillos were working at the houses. They wouldn't let the Steins get anywhere near there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, the couple settled in New York City in a house that was provided by his mother, um, as well as a second residence at the family's estate overlooking the Hudson River in Hyde Park. Um, so from the beginning... Eleanor had a combative relationship with her controlling mother-in-law. The townhouse that Sarah gave to them was connected to her own residence by a sliding door. Can you imagine? (laughs) By a sliding glass door. And Sarah ran, the mother-in-law, ran both households in the decade after the marriage. So I did a little little thing here about their family. So married in 1905. Um, In 1906, they were married in March of 1905. And in 1906, May 3rd, 1906, she gave birth to her first child, Anna. 1907, December 23rd, 1907, she gave birth to her second child, James. 1909, March 18th, Eleanor gives birth to her third child, Franklin Jr., which is so weird that the second son was named was a junior? Franklin Jr. Yeah. Maybe he came out and they're like, he's, a, he's cute. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> first one was he, too plain. But he died of influenza <gasps> when he was like less than, I think it was like 
seven months old or something. Oh, that's so sad. He had a heart condition. One thing said influenza, another thing said heart condition. Maybe it was Um, both. And then in 1910, September 23rd, 1910, she had her fourth child, Elliot. And August 17th of 1914, she gave birth to her fifth child, Franklin Jr. So they named the fifth, since the third one died. They just named the... They renamed the fifth one Franklin Jr., which is... Weird. Get that. Yeah. That was, but maybe that was normal back then. Like, I could understand if he was like died at birth, so they didn't really know him, but that kid had a, like, he was seven months. He had a personality. Yeah. Like, it's very strange. He was a person. He wanted to have a junior, so they named him. Yeah. So then, this is kind of funny. So, um, August 17th, the fifth child, Franklin, and then March 17th, their wedding anniversary, 1916, Eleanor gave birth to John, her sixth and last child. Oh, that's too many. Ugh, she man. should have stopped that. That like, last kid just one. came walking out smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah also sought control of raising her grandchildren, and Eleanor reflected later that Franklin's children were more of my mother-in-law's children than they were mine. Oh, wow. Eleanor's eldest son, James, remembers Sarah telling her grandchildren, their grandmother, your mother only bore you. I am your mother. I am more your mother than your mother is. What a bitch. She wow. and I would rumble. Yeah, no kidding. We would have. Also, Rose, believe it or not, Eleanor didn't like having sex with her husband. <laughs> I don't know. Six kids later, I don't know how much. Yeah, I she's that, probably but... like traumatized. Yeah, but maybe it's just every time they had sex, it was just for the purpose of having a kid. Oh, I mean, that's yeah. I don't know. She once told her daughter Anna that it was an in quotes an ordeal to be born. She also considered herself ill-suited for motherhood. Later, writing. In quotes, I did not come naturally. It did not come naturally to me to understand little children or enjoy them. <laughs> well, good thing you had six of them. Well, also too though, she was raising her brothers too, so she might have been exhausted at this point. Yeah, I just, and I think some people just aren't like I, mean, I don't know. Par- being a parent is exhausting, and being a mother is is even more exhausting. Yeah, being a wife is the worst. Oh my god. So glad I'm not one. I hate it so much. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just spit across the table. <laughs> Eleanor's perception of her role in life began to shift in 1914 when the First World War. Oh, here we go. Oh, boy. When the First World War cast its shadow over the world. Her husband, Franklin, had been appointed as assistant secretary of the Navy, and the family relocated to Washington, D.C. The city buzzed with activity as people from all walks of life dedicated themselves bravely to the war effort. It didn't take long for Eleanor to recognize her duty to contribute. And so I think it's so cool because back then, like, everybody just jumped in and was like, what do we need to do to yeah, help right, the war? Yeah, right, yeah. Now you know, it would people, just be a bunch of people fighting on the Internet. Yeah, well, they're fighting <laughs> over it, and then people are, like, fighting against it, which, I mean— it's okay, but it's like people helped. And yeah, instead of criticizing, right. people helped. They did yeah. whatever they could to help their country. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I mean, know. It's if, so different now. If it's a senseless war, I get it. But anyway, despite growing up in a remarkable, with remarkable privilege, surrounded by maids and servants, she immersed herself in hard manual labor at the Red Cross Canteen, working from 9 a.m. to 2 a.m. the next day. Oh, my gosh. She also visited psychiatric hospitals and met m- wounded soldiers. As her confidence in her own abilities blossomed, she began raising funds to improve conditions in American psychiatric facilities. I'm like, she, mental health. Yeah. She's, she started the movement of helping people with mental health, and then it just stopped when she, yeah, you know, when the 
Anyway, by the war's <laughs> end, Eleanor had not only demonstrated her organizational and managerial expertise outside the home, but had also discovered the power of her position to affect positive change, finding immense joy in doing good for ordinary people. No, oh. that's how I feel. I love doing good things for people. In September 18th, in September 18th, in September 1918, <laughs> close, Lynn, close. Eleanor was unpacking one of Franklin's suitcases when she <gasps> discovered a bundle of love letters to him from her social secretary and dear friend, Lucy Mercer. Why would he keep them in a suitcase knowing she's going to unpack it? I don't know. Maybe he thought he was going to unpack it, but oh she God. found them. That's sad. He had been contemplating leaving his wife for Mercer. However, following the pressure from his political advisor... Uh, Lewis Howe and his mother, who threatened to disinherit him if he followed through with a divorce, the couple remained. Oh, married. even though she hated his wife, yeah, yeah, it'd be well, bring because, shame on the family. Okay, it would bring so much shame to yeah. the family. But Eleanor also told him, um, "I watched a movie um, called Warm Springs. I think it was called. It was it was it wasn't enough about it wasn't as much about her, but it was actually not a bad movie because I was interested in her life. Yeah, but um, yeah, she according to that movie, she said. We can get divorced. She told him. Oh, that's really? Fine. Yeah. She was like, whatever you want. Oh, good for her. I'll, you know, but then his mother was like, absolutely not. She's like, I hate living here anyway. <laughs> yeah. Their union from that point was more of a political partnership. Eleanor oh, again wow. began to active. Eleanor again became act. Eleanor again <laughs> became active in public life and fo- focused increasingly on her social work rather than her role as a wife. Three years later, during a relaxing family vacation on Campobello Island in the summer of 1921, Franklin's health began to deteriorate. Initially dismissed as a mere cold by the attending doctor, Franklin's condition worsened rapidly. Within days, he lost mobility of his legs <gasps> and was diagnosed with polio. Oh, no. And then they say, I read a couple different articles where they say that they think it was maybe not polio. It was something else, but I forgot to write down what the other thing was. But if you look at most things, say it was polio. Throughout the fall and winter of that year, Eleanor assumed the role of her husband's devoted nurse, learning how to care for him and help him move. Some would later say that she saved his life with all her care. Like, she was, like, intensely devoted on helping him. And she was, like, working with him, helping him walk, moving his muscles, keeping everything. You know, just, like, she was amazing. And that might just be because she's wants to take care of people not because she actually that's true i didn't think about that because she like yeah no that's absolutely might have had nothing to do with you heard it here folks live live you heard (laughs) (laughs) this uh so despite the adversity they faced i mean this was pretty tough yeah imagine right i mean he was such a powerful man and then to be like bedridden basically yeah that's crazy so franklin and eleanor never complained or harbored any bitterness only once did Eleanor re- retreat to her room to cry. I can't even imagine. I mean, like, it had to be horrible for Right, her. yeah. With his illness and Eleanor's newfound caregiving responsibilities, the couple gradually distanced themselves from the high society social circle they were once a part of. Following the onset of Franklin's paralytic illness in 1921, Eleanor began serving as a stand-in for him, um, for her incapaci- incapacitated husband. Making public appearances on his behalf, often carefully coached by Lewis Howe, his political advisor. She also started working with the Women's Trade Union League, raising funds in support of the union's goals, which were, we've heard this before, Rose, a 48-hour work week, minimum wage, <laughs> and the abolition, the, is it abolition or the abolition, the, 
Abolition. Abolition of child labor. Just like Mary Harris. Oh, yeah. Mother, Mother Jones. That's Mary right. Harris she was Jones. trying to get a 40-hour yeah. work, yeah. work week. Well, so, we're down to 40 hours, so let's decrease it even more. So I looked it up, Rose. That was episode 17. Oh, good job. Yeah. Did my homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she, I mean, like, I wonder if they knew each other. Like, I wonder if they, oh. like, I, well, I don't year, remember talking about her knowing. I don't know what year it was either. I don't know. But, I mean, if they were both fighting for it, it had to be yeah, within the same, have. like, five to ten years, I would think. But, anyway, I just thought that was kind of cool. She discovered an inner desire to work and forge her own path. In the 1920s, she was elected as chairperson of the Women's Division of the Democratic State Committee and began raising funds for the Women's Trade Union League. In 1924, Eleanor campaigned for the Democratic Alfred E. Smith for the... Fucking Lynn. In 1924, (laughs) Eleanor campaigned for Democrat... Alfred E. Smith in his successful re-election bid as governor of New York State against the Republican nominee, her first cousin, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Oh, really? Oh. Uh, he never forgave her. <laughs> I bet. Theodore said, uh, bitch, uh, we are done. <laughs> a book and uh, a bye. <laughs> so Eleanor's aunt, Anna, Bamey was her nickname, Roosevelt Cowles publicly broke with her after the election. I think it's so funny because it was probably like a newspaper article. Anna Baby right, yeah, exactly. publicly separates herself from, you know what I mean? Like now people are like, whatever. She's canceled. Bye. <laughs> she wrote to her niece and quote, I just hate to have Eleanor let herself look as she does. Though never handsome, she always had me, she always had to me a charming effect, but alas, and lack a day. Since politics have become her choicest interest and all her charm has disappeared. So I didn't know what lackaday meant. So it's an expression of surprise, regret, or grief. So, but alas, and an expression of surprise, like she was saying. I wonder why we don't use that anymore. I'm not going to start using it. Yeah. Lackaday. Lackaday. So Eleanor dismissed Bamie's criticisms by referring to her as an aged woman. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I say about Lynn when people yeah, she's just talk old. about her. She's, she's just old. old. She's aged. She's just an old bag. <laughs> However, Baby and Eleanor eventually reconciled. Oh, good. They were at a family reunion. She said, you want a sip of my flask? And she said, sure, girl. So, anyway. However, she didn't like everything she witnessed. Corruption still thrived in some of the small towns, with people being paid by politicians for their votes and political parties colluding with dishonest local businesses. Nevertheless, Eleanor remained focused, recognizing that good... Goodness and flaws coexisted in most politicians so that individuals could act nobly, although not always. She eventually dabbled in political speeches, though her unfortunate tendency to laugh while speaking was evident. (laughs) And I tried to look that up. Like, did she? Like, I couldn't find any, like, really good evidence. But she would, like, start laughing in the middle of a speech. Oh, that's interesting. I was like, that's awesome. Charlotte does that when she gets in trouble. She laughs? Yeah. Like, she can't. Like, like, we realized she... It's like she can't help it. Oh my god! Did you get pissed at first? Oh yeah! I mean, we've like yelled at her, like, "Go to your room!" You're like, "Why are you laughing?" Because that pisses you off when yeah. you're like getting your kids in trouble. But then I realized that it's like a nerve, like it's it must be some thing, kind of yeah. a nervous thing. Oh my god, that's crazy. Yeah, I know, poor girl. Central to all her political endeavors was an increasing concern for the well-being of the American workers. In 1927, with the support of her friends, she established a handmade furniture company and factory. What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck are you doing? You're like, "Mm, 
You're so stupid. I'm, I'm making faces into the camera. <laughs> you are busted. <laughs> the company aimed to provide employment opportunities for young people who were jobless. Eleanor didn't hesitate to invest her own money to kickstart the project. Although the company didn't achieve long-term excess, excess? <laughs> success she envisioned, it didn't achieve the long-term success she envisioned. It played a crucial role in providing valuable work for the Great Depression. So she was like, I need to, I need to employ all these people, yeah, so I'm going to start a furniture company. Oh, right? good what? for her. Through this initiative, those who had lost all hope during those trying times found renewed dignity and security through meaningful employment, which is so cool. During the late 20s, the furniture company wasn't Eleanor's sole community outreach effort. In 1927, she joined friends Marion Dickerman and Nancy Cook in buying the Todd Hunter School for Girls, a finishing school which also offered college preparatory courses in New York City. At the school, Eleanor taught upper-level courses in American literature and history, emphasizing independent, though current events, and social engagement. So can you imagine being so rich that you just buy a furniture company so the poor people can work there? So the people, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's pretty fucking rich. But she was like, I love that she was teaching girls like independence and yeah, that, current I mean, events really and nice. social engagement. That's like so important because they weren't learning that anywhere else. Yeah, right. As Eleanor pursued her own passions, Franklin pursued his own. And in 1928, he won the election for the governor of New York. She continued to teach three days a week at the girls' school while FDR served as governor. Sadly, she was forced to leave teaching after his election as president. So he became the president like of the United Biden. States. Like his wife, Franklin genuinely desired to improve the lives of ordinary people, particularly the most vulnerable among them. With, his, with this goal in mind, he took on the responsibility of inspecting New York State in institutions, such as children's hospitals and state prisons. However, as he couldn't personally visit these places, Eleanor stepped in on his behalf, meticulously documenting the quality of food, overcrowding, and medical care. Oh, good for her. I love this. I love it so much. During her visits, she even peered into the kitchen pots to ensure that the menu was accurately served oh, and wow. carefully observed the dynamics between the staff and the individuals in these institutions. Wow. So she was like, not just like walking through and like, hmm, hmm. Yeah, not like, just checking a box. Yeah, she was exactly. actually like, I think it's so cool. Doing what she said she was doing. Yet even as Franklin held the esteemed position of governor, he still felt a calling to do more. In 1932, he was elected president of the United States, the highest office of the land, Rose. Really? Yeah. Wow. Did you not know that? I didn't know that. You thought it was podcaster of an ordinary <laughs> way? <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Although Eleanor had encouraged him to run for presidency, she secretly harbored concerns when he emerged victorious. She feared that her own personal life would come to an end as his presidency began. She was like, oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, I can't. That's that's a tough job. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough job to be president, but being the president's wife is like well, she being was also first gonna, lady is. She was also going to be under the spotlight. Right. You know, like yeah. everything she did was going to be. And not to mention your security is much more like, I mean, you, you can't go as Right. To as many places, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, thanks. Nevertheless, once settled in the White House, she decided to make the most of it, quickly challenging people's preconceived notions of how a first lady should behave. Oh, <laughs> I was like, "You go, girl." Eleanor defined conventions. 
defied conventions, both in significant and subtle ways. People were astonished when she operated her own elevator and rearranged furniture, tasks that had never been done by a president's wife before, which made me still laugh somewhere. I was like, operated her own elevator? Yeah, she pressed the button. I know, that's made me laugh. And I was like, oh, she pressed the button. I was like, oh, my God, that's so funny. Yeah, because they usually have elevator men, right? I know, but I think that's wow, so funny. Yeah. Operated her own elevator, and I was like, what? I wonder if she got in and she was like, no, I'll fucking do it. I, get out of my fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? My fucking fingers don't work? <laughs> True to her character, she also advocated for the women around her. Due to the prevailing sexist attitudes of the, at the time, many women in senior government positions had never received invitations to the White House. Recognizing this injustice, Eleanor took matters into her own hands and personally invited these accomplished women. She organized garden parties, teas, and teas in honor of their work. Oh, wow. Yeah. But she didn't stop there, Rose. Upon discovering that female reporters in Washington faced constant threats of termination unless they found news, newsworthy stories, she started hosting regular press conferences exclusive, exclusively for women oh, reporters. Oh, wow. That's awesome. During these sessions, sessions, she shared updates on her own activities as the first lady. So pause real quick because this morning Chris told me he was listening to our episode that came out today. Mm-hmm. And he's like... I'm four minutes in, and Lynn's already made four different voices. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what does he mean, voices? I guess you were talking like that, like, oh. being goofy. <laughs> Bro, Chris. He's such a hater. I love you, Chris. <laughs> Chris, I love you. Chris, I love you. I love you, Chris. I love you, Chris. <laughs> now we're going to really annoy him. So, um, so perhaps Eleanor's most bold departure from tradition was her refusal to have Secret Service agents accompany <gasps> her whenever she ventured out alone. Really? She believed it was absolutely unnecessary. It's not. <laughs> well, back then it was probably safer than it is now. Oh, yeah, because like now they could be like, oh, you know, post it on Facebook and then yeah. everyone yeah, would no, know. I mean, but... I feel like back then it was probably safer because people respected the president no matter what. Yeah, right. But, but if somebody was trying to kill her, which well, is probably pretty common... Well, later on, I think she probably was not so safe. Yeah. But instead, she learned how to shoot and carry a revolver with her at all times. Oh, good for her. Fortunately, she never had to use it. <laughs> this bitch is so bad. She was like, I don't, need, I don't need a man. I got my own gun. I'm surprised a, they let her. Like That is so funny. Isn't it great? They didn't force her to have secret service She carried agents. her own gun. I think that's amazing. That is. During her tenure in the White House. Eleanor also gained notoriety for her progressive stance on racial in a, racial equality, sometimes finding herself at odds with her husband. She passionately supported anti-lynching legislation and felt disappointed when Franklin failed to endorse it himself. Oh, wow. Against the, against the advice of her political advisors, Eleanor even hosted garden parties for African-American girls from local reform schools. And I'll talk about that wow. a little bit more in a bit. So this is, that's when we were saying she was probably safe. We were saying she's safe. But, like, I feel like this kind of stuff... Right. Yeah. Like the from KKK like, was like in the South. Oh, oh my, my God. Killer. Those around her feared, feared the backlash of Southern conservatives. But Eleanor had long resolved to long resolved to do what she believed was right and not concerned herself with others opinions. Good for her. Her concern for workers grew during her travels across the country, where she reported her findings to Franklin on the prevailing conditions. One visit that deeply impacted her took place in a coal mining region of West Virginia, where the community suffered greatly from the Great Depression. 
There, she encountered families surviving on just a dollar a week and children barely surviving on food scraps for meals. In the 1930s, Eleanor had a very close relationship with aviator Amelia Earhart. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? One time, the two snuck out from the White House and went to a party dressed up for the occasion. After flying with Earhart, Eleanor obtained a student permit but didn't pursue her plans to, didn't further pursue her plans to fly. Franklin was not in favor of his wife becoming a pilot. <laughs> I bet. I just love, she's like, oh, I like the flying thing. I, I think <laughs> I'm going to try it. I just love that. I think it's so cool. Um, nevertheless, the two women communicated frequently throughout their lives. Eleanor, Eleanor also had a close relationship with Associated Press reporter Lorena, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's Lorena, Lorena Hickok who covered her during the last month of the presidential campaign and fell madly in love with her. That was a quote. During this period... there was some lesbianism in there. There could be. During this period, Eleanor wrote daily 10 to 15-page letters to Hick, who was planning to write a biography of the First Lady. The letters included such endearments as, I want to put my arms around you and kiss you in the corner of your mouth, and I can't kiss you, so I'll kiss your picture. Good night and good morning. <gasps> At Franklin's 1933 inauguration, Eleanor wore a sapphire ring Hickok had given her. See? She did like well, the lesbian action. That's why she didn't like her husband. There is considerable debate about whether or not Eleanor had sexual relationship with she Hickok. She did. It was known... <laughs> I'm sure of it. It was known in the White House press corps at the time that Hickok was a lesbian. Lynn, when's the last time I sent you a text that I want to put my arms around you and kiss you on the mouth? This morning. Well, that's because we're lesbians. (laughs) (laughs) There's something wrong with that, y'all, but we're not. (laughs) That's what she says. She's ashamed (laughs) of it. (laughs) Actually, we're bisexual. (laughs) (laughs) Scholars, including Lillian Faderman and Hazel Raleigh, have asserted that there was a physical component to the relationship, while Hickok biographer... Doris Faber has argued that the intimate phrases have misled historians. So Hickok had a biographer, Doris Faber, who like, you know, said that it was not. So there's there's a lot of back and forth. So Doris Kearns Goodwin stated in her 1994 Pulitzer Prize winning account of the Roosevelt's that whether Hick and Eleanor went beyond kisses and hugs could not be determined with certainty. There's, like, no, like, true evidence of it. Well, of course there's not. They weren't doing it in public. Well, there was no <laughs> social media. They weren't. Well, and if there was, the president's wife is not going to be posting that back then. Well, you never know. She could have gotten drunk, posted a <laughs> selfie. <laughs> Eleanor was close, close friends with several lesbian couples, such as Nancy Cook and Marion Dickerman. Oh, wow, that's surprising. And Esther Lape and Elizabeth Fisher-Reed. It could be Lape or it could be Lape. See, she does like the lesbians. Um, suggesting that she understood lesbianism, Marie Sauvestre, I forgot how to say her name already, Eleanor's childhood teacher and great influence on her later thinking, was also a lesbian. I told you. You called that at the beginning. I didn't want to say anything, but you definitely called I it. I knew it by the so, name. <laughs> so I think it's really interesting that they're openly saying that these couples were lesbians back then. I know. That's and, really surprising. And nobody, like, they, it just was like, whatever. They were oh, lesbians. I'm sure they, it wasn't whatever. Because nobody cared. And now people are like, oh, my God, it's well, the devil. I'm sure it wasn't like. Well, it wasn't widely accepted. Oh, we're lesbians. It was more like we're living together as friends. And then everybody knows we're lesbians, but nobody talks about it. Exactly. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Um so in the same years, Washington Gossip linked Eleanor romantically 
with the New Deal administrator, Harry Hopkins. I mean, they got to make up their mind. With whom she worked closely. Eleanor also had a close relationship with New York State Police Sergeant Earl Miller, who was assigned by the president to be her bodyguard. Eleanor was 44 years old when she met Miller, who was 32 in 1929. He became her friend as well as her official escort, teaching her different sports such as diving and riding and coached her in tennis. Oh, wow. So biographer Blanche Weissen Cook, who wrote several books about Eleanor, writes that Miller was Eleanor's, in quotes, first romantic involvement in her middle years. Hazel Raleigh wrote a book about Eleanor and Franklin, yeah. concludes, there is no doubt that Eleanor was in love with Earl for a time, but they are most like, unlikely to have had an affair. Interesting. Um, so th- she, she was like with a lot of people. And, you know, was it her compassion for other people and just her like intensity yeah. of being with people that made everyone think, oh my God, they're having an affair. Oh my God. You know, is it that? Or is it just the fact that like she was, she was in a loveless marriage. So... She yeah, was just I mean, to get I'm sure she could, like, like affection and attention and yeah, love. Yeah, I'm sure that she was. If she, she kind of said that she was not that into the marriage, right? Well, no, they said they remember they just lived. It was like a political yeah partnership. So yeah, I'm sure they were both like having affairs, and yeah, neither one of them talked about it, but it was right. just kind of something that went on. Right. So Eleanor, she went with both men and women. She could have. She could have. Eleanor's friendship with Miller occurred at the same time that her husband had rumored a rumored relationship with his secretary, Marguerite Missy Lahand. Smith writes, remarkably, both Eleanor and Franklin recognized, accepted, and encouraged the arrangement. Wow. Eleanor and Franklin were strong-willed people who cared greatly for each other's happiness but realized their own inability to provide it. So they couldn't well, do it for each good. other. But yeah. I mean, that's very mature. Eleanor and Miller's relationship is said to have continued until her death in 1962. Wow. They are thought to have corresponded daily, but all letters have been lost. This is kind of interesting. According to rumor, the letters were anonymously purchased and destroyed or locked away when she died. I bet it was like a friend of hers. Yeah. she probably Yeah. yeah. I just think that's really interesting. Somebody that knew said, I'm going to pay whatever, or him, I'm going to pay whatever I have to do to buy yeah. these. And that's, you know, she probably like left him money. And yeah. Then, well, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, she just felt like it's probably it's nobody's fucking business. Yeah. And it's and not. It's not. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd like to know. But I know. Really <laughs> I wish they didn't you know, destroy just, the letters. She but. did good things for a lot of people that needed it. And yeah. Right. Whatever she did in her personal life. I don't yeah, care. Right. So her chief, pro- her, her chief project during her husband's first two terms was the establishment of a planned community in Arthurdale, West Virginia. In August 18, 1933, at Hickok's urging, so the Hickok, never mind, you knew that is, um, El- uh, Eleanor visited the families of homeless miners in Morgantown, West Virginia, who had been blacklisted following union activities. Deeply affected by the visit, Eleanor proposed a resettlement community for the miners in Arthurdale, where they could make a living by uh, a living by subsistence farming, handcrafts, and local manufacturing, and a local ma- manufacturing plant. She hoped the project could become a model for a new kind of community in the U.S. where workers would be cared for. Oh wow! So like they get this community, they're like live in the community, they're being cared for. Yeah, they're you know they're have like they're be creating their own environment, their right. own community, yeah. their own food, everything. Her husband enthusiastically supported the project. After an initial disastrous experiment with prefabbed houses, construction began again in 1934 to Eleanor's specifications, this time with every modern convenience 
in quotes, included an indoor plumbing and central steam heat. Wow. Families occupied the first 50 homes in June and agreed to repay the government in 30 years' time. So the government built these houses and then they had like basically pay a mortgage until it was paid right, off, yeah. which is phenomenal. Though Eleanor had hoped for a racially mixed community, the miners insisted on limiting membership to white Christians, you know, because the Christian people are the nicest people. Yeah, of course, obviously. After losing Especially the white ones. God. (laughs) After losing a community vote, Eleanor recommended the creation of other communities for the excluded black and Jewish miners. And that was so fucked up. I know. The experience motivated Eleanor to become much more outspoken on the issue of racial discrimination. Eleanor remained a vigorous fundraiser for the community for several years, as well as spending most of her own income on the project. You know, I'm surprised she, she didn't just say, well, then you guys can't live here and the black right. no, and the Jews are... The, all or nothing. Black people but and the Jews are going to move Those in. Christians, you know, they're the closest to Jesus, so... Yeah, that's true. The project was criticized by both the political left and right. Conservatives condemned it as a socialist and communist plot. Of course, of course it's automatically communist. Yeah, right. Well, Democratic members of Congress opposed the government completion with private enterprise. Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ikes, I think it's Ikes, also opposed the project, citing its high per-family cost. Authordale continued to sink as a government spending priority for the federal government until 1941, when the U.S. sold off the last of its holdings in the community at a loss. Oh, so sad. That is sad. Eleanor is seen by historians has is seen by historians as having been significantly more advanced than her husband on civil rights. I mean, I agree. Sounds completely. like it. Yeah. During Franklin's administration, Eleanor became an important connection to the African American population in the area of segregation. Despite the president's desire to appease, appease Southern sentiment, Eleanor was vocal in her support of the civil rights movements. After her experience with Arthur Dale and her inspections of New Deal programs in southern states, she concluded that the New Deal programs were discriminating against African Americans who received a disproportionately small share of relief money. She became one of the only voices in her husband's administration insisting that the benefits be equally extended to Americans of all races. She was way before her time. What year was that supposed to be? Oh, God, Rose. Why are you going to ask me that shit now? Um, so it was after 1941. Okay. Um, she also broke with tradition by inviting hundreds of African-American guests to the White House throughout the entire presidency. Yeah, good for her. In 1936, she became aware of conditions in the National Training School for Girls, a predominantly black reform school once located in the Palisades neighborhood of Washington, D.C. She visited the school and wrote about it in her my day column so she had a column in the newspaper called my day and it talked about everything she did as the as the first lady oh wow she lobbied for additional funding and pressed for changes in staffing and circulation her white house invitation to the students became an issue in franklin's 1936 re-election campaign Uh-oh. she's like you know people are like you can't have a bunch of black girls in the school in yeah, the white right. house yeah when the black singer mary uh marion anderson was denied the use of Washington's Constitutional Hall by the Daughters of the American Revolution in 1939. Eleanor said, bye and she resigned from the group in protest and helped arrange, oh, another, wow. Good and for her. arrange another concert for her on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Wow, good yes. for her. I know. Isn't that amazing? She later presented Ari Anderson 
to the King and Queen of the United Kingdom after Anderson performed at the White House dinner. Wow. Isn't that so cool? I love it. It gives me goosebumps. I think it's so cool. Was that um, Queen Elizabeth? I don't know. I don't know. The King and Queen of the White House. It would have been 1939. Oh, no. No, she wasn't queen till like the 50s, I think. Yeah, so it was King George. I don't know. I don't know. Eleanor later presented Anderson to the king and queen of the... Oh, I already told you that. Fuck. Eleanor also arranged the appointment of African-American educator Mary McLeod Bethune, Bethune, with whom she had struck up a friendship as a director of the Division of Negro Affairs to the National Youth Administration. To avoid problems with the staff when Bethune would visit the White House, Eleanor would meet her at the gate. I love this so much. She'd meet her at the gate, embrace her, and walk with her arm in arm to the White House. Oh, wow. Good for her. So she wouldn't get any shit when she was trying to get in. I love that. I love it. And people are like, oh, my God, she's touching a black girl. Like, it was just like. Yeah. Like, she just. Of course. She's human. And I just, I don't get it. I still, I'll never understand. When race riots broke out in Detroit in June of 1943, critics in both the North and the South wrote that Eleanor was to blame. Yeah. They're blaming her. Yeah. At the same time, she grew up, she grew so popular among the African-Americans, previously a reliable Republican voting bloc, that they became a consistent base of support for the Democratic Party. So interesting, isn't that okay. interesting? Yeah. So I do remember reading something at some point in one of my stories where, like, the Republican and Democrat parties kind of flipped what their stances were. Yeah, at some they. Point. they um, I don't know what year. I want to say it was like in the 30s, but I might be wrong. Um, Republicans were Democrats, and Democrats were yeah, and Republicans. Yeah, so this would be like yeah, this would make sense to this kind of thing too. Yeah. So, following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December seventh, nineteen forty-one, Eleanor spoke out about Japanese out against Japanese American prejudice, warning against the great hysteria among against minority groups. She's like, she called that was in quotes the great hysteria. Yeah, calm my, down, everyone. Just calm the fuck down. <laughs> She also privately opposed her husband's executive order 9066, which required Japanese American in many areas of the U.S. to enter internment camps. So she opposed it, but he still did it. And that was another story we did. She was widely criticized for her defense of Japanese American citizens, including a call by the Los Angeles Times that she be, in quote, forced to retire from public life over her stand on the issue. Oh, my God. Isn't that disgusting? That is disgusting. She was an unprecedented outspoken first lady who made far more use of the media than her predecessors. She held 348 press conferences over the span of her husband's 12-year presidency. Inspired by her relationship with Hickok, Eleanor placed a ban on male reporters attending the press conferences, effectively forcing the newspapers to keep female reporter on staff in order to cover them. Wow, that's awesome. (laughs) Throughout Franklin's presidency, Eleanor fought to maintain her independence, including financial autonomy. In 1936, she began writing a magazine column titled My Day, and that's what I was telling you about, in which she shared details of her work and daily routines in the White House. Motivated by the public's enthusiastic response to her writing, she committed herself to produce this column six days a week for the next five years only missing her daily deadline on one occasion. Wow, that's Holy impressive. Holy shit, that's a lot of work. I wonder how long the column was. I don't know, but it was like her, her daily, like basically her daily duties every day. Eleanor made an that's extensive use of radio. She was not the first lady to broadcast. Her, her predecessor, Lou Henry Hoover, 
had done that already, but Hoover did not have a regular radio program, whereas Eleanor did. She first broadcast her own programs of radio commentary beginning on July 9, 1934. During 1934, Eleanor set a record for the most times a first lady had spoken on radio. Wow. She spoke as a guest on other people's program as well as a host of her own for a total of 28 times that year. That's crazy. <laughs> In 1935, Eleanor continued to host programs aimed at the female audience, including one called It's a Woman's World. Each time, she donated any money she earned to charity. So awesome. Franklin and Eleanor were still in office when the Second World War erupted. Wow, that's crazy. As her own sons enlisted in the military and went to Europe on active service, she felt intensely connected to the other mothers around the world who were also worried for their children's lives. As the conflict raged, Eleanor bravely traveled to war zones across the world, providing much-needed morale boost to Allied troops, which I think is just amazing. It had to be really tough for her, though, like to be there. Yeah, to know her sons are there. Yeah. When she met the young soldiers and saw the sacrifices they were making, she made a promise to herself to dedicate the rest of her life to ensuring there would never be another war. Wow. She briefly considered traveling to Europe to work with the Red Cross, but was dissuaded by the presidential advisors who pointed out the consequences should the president's wife be captured as a prisoner of war. <laughs> Could you imagine? She's like, That'd I got awful. my gun. I got my gun. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'll be fine. Soon she found other wartime causes to work on. She began with a popular movement to allow the immigration of European refugee children. She also lobbied her husband to allow greater immigration of groups prosecuted, uh, sorry, persecuted by the Nazis, including Jews. But fears of fifth columnists caused Franklin to restrict immigration rather than expand it. So I didn't know what a fifth columnist yeah, was. Yeah, I don't either. So it's a group of people who undermine a nation or a larger group from within. So so like a group of people that are citizens uh-huh. are trying to undermine the whole nation of oh. the United States or like a group, pe- group of people at your work that are trying to undermine like the, the administration. administration, yeah, something like that. So I'd never heard of that before. Eleanor, you learned to hear, you folks, right here, right here. Right line. here on No Ordinary Women. <laughs> Eleanor successfully secured political refuge status for 83 Jewish refugees from the SS Quinzana, Quanza, Quanzia, in August of 1940, but was refused on many other occasions. Oh. That's so sad. Her son James later wrote that, in quote, her deepest regret at the end of her life was that she had not forced Franklin to accept more refugees from Nazism during the war. Oh, that's really sad. That's sad that she still thought about that later yeah. in her life. In, Noct- in, in October. In October. <laughs> in October. <laughs> Here's another voice for you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> he stopped listening by this point. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to make me laugh so hard now every time I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> four voices. <laughs> okay. I said, I'll, try being there in person with her. You, you know, just like, have to listen you, on a, on a podcast. You close and you're like, you don't know who's in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you know it was Lynn? <laughs> she stepped out and somebody else came in. There was Bugs Bunny. There was Roadrunner. <laughs> A German guy. (laughs) A German guy. (laughs) Okay. In October of 1942, Eleanor toured England, visiting with American troops and inspecting British forces. Her visits drew enormous crowds and received almost unanimous favorable press in both England and America. In August of 1943, she visited American troops in the South Pacific. 
Pacific, the South Pacific on a moral building tour. A moral <laughs> morale building. <laughs> I was like, wow. In August of 1943, she visited American troops in the South Pacific on a morale building tour, of which Admiral William Halsey Jr. later said, in quotes, she alone accomplished more good than any other person or groups of civilians who had passed through my area. Wow. Just her. I mean, that's so amazing. For her part, Eleanor was left shaken and deeply depressed by seeing the war's carnage. A number of congressional Republicans criticized her for using... Scarce wartime resources for her trip, prompting Franklin to suggest that she take a break from traveling. So although the troops were like loving it and they were like, this was like the biggest morale builder. It was better than any other person that came through here. You know, these politicians are like, oh, she can't keep doing this because she's doing better than they are, I think. That's oh, for sure. So I mean, it's pretty impressive that the soldiers were like, you know, they're all men and they were like. Loving her. Well, she was probably she was probably sincere, you know, right, yeah. unlike a politician who's talking out their asshole. And she's like looking at them as her children. Right. Her also, sons exactly. Were there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So Eleanor supported increased roles for women and African Americans in the war effort and began to advocate for women to be given factory jobs a year before it became widespread widespread practice. So like uh, Rosie the Riveter. What the hell was that? I I went to grab <laughs> I went to grab a, a blueberry out of my thing. And so I had it on my, my lips and I was like, what the hell are you doing? I mean she just licked her finger out I'm of like, nowhere. Very weird. <laughs> oh, oh great. No, I, I went to, what kind of I subscribers went to pull a piece out of there while you were talking and then you stopped talking really fast so I couldn't, so my fingers were sitting here sticky. <laughs> I'm about to leave. Okay. In 1942, she urged women of all social backgrounds to learn trades, saying, if I were a debutante age, I would go into a factory, any factory where I could learn a skill and be useful. Eleanor learned of the high rate of absenteeism among working mothers, and she campaigned for government-sponsored daycare. What a fucking concept. Can you believe it? What? Like, nobody thought of that before then? Can we get that now? Because women weren't allowed to work. And so when all the men were gone at war, somebody had to do it, like Rosie the Riveter. Yeah, right. That was the Rosie, Rivet, Rosie the Riveter era. She notably supported the Tuskegee, Tuskegee Airmen in their successful effort to become the first black combat pirates. Pirates. <laughs> <laughs> Pilots. <laughs> Put the drink down, Lynn. I didn't know if that's what the Tuskegee Airmen were. Yeah. Pirate? Visiting the they weren't pirates, they were pirates. <laughs> Visiting the Tuskegee Air Corps Advanced Flying School in Alabama. Franklin died in April of April of 12, 1945. April 12, 1945, after suffering her celebrial celebrial hemorrhage. Stuff. I can't talk anymore. <laughs> at the little White House in Warm Spring, Georgia. Warm Spring, Georgia was a place that he spent a lot of time. Um, it was a like a mineral salt spring. Okay. pool and it was it would make you buoyant so if you didn't have use of your legs you could kind of walk in the water and it was very therapeutic oh, and he's i watched a whole movie about it it's actually pretty good um and he spent a lot of time there i was going to make a joke about how it's like mar-a-lago no it's definitely a <laughs> but um, he was there for therapy so reasons. he went there and it was just like this rundown resort that was struggling for money yeah. and he they, they started taking pictures of him and advertising that he was like getting some muscle he was getting his legs were like super, you know, he had no muscle left in his yeah, legs. So he was right. starting to get muscle back in his legs. He was actually able to walk with the help of two people and like um, uh, Kane. Yeah. But it was only because he was getting muscle mass from 
doing this exercise yeah. in this Yeah. Was he in a wheelchair? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's weird. Part, yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. So she later learned that her husband's mistress, Lucy Mercer, now named Rutherford, had been with him when he died. A discovery made more bitter by learning that her daughter, Anna, had also been aware of the ongoing relationship between the president and Rutherford. Oh. It was Anna who told her that Franklin had been with Rutherford when he died. In addition, she told her that Franklin had continued the relationship for decades and people surrounding him had hidden the information from his wife. Isn't that shitty? But I thought she already kind of knew about it. Well, she so people say that they knew, but according to her, she didn't know. Maybe she just so, said that. After the funeral, funeral, after funeral, the funeral, after the funeral, Eleanor temporarily returned to Valkill, which was their house in Hyde Park. Franklin left instructions for her in the event of his death. Um, he proposed turning over Hyde Park to the federal government as a museum, and she spent the following months cataloging the estate and arranging it for the transfer. Oh, wow. After his death, she moved into an apartment in Greenwich Village. In 1950, she rented suites at the Park Sheraton Hotel. She lived here until 1953 when she moved to East 62nd Street. When that lease expired in 1958, she returned to the Park Sheraton as, as she waited for the house she purchased with Edna and David Gershwich at East 74th Street to be renovated. In December of 1945, President Truman invited Eleanor to join the newly formed United Nations. She was asked uh-huh. to be part of the American delegation for the organization's, organization's inaugural meeting in London. I mean, how cool is that? That's awesome. At first, Eleanor hesitated, feeling that, that accepting the role would be impossible to do with her lack of experience. However, she recognized the significance of the United Nations in achieving lasting global peace, a cause that meant a great deal to her late husband, Franklin. With the, and she's still respecting him. Yeah, his, right. Right. With this in mind, she ultimately, right, she ultimately decided to take on the responsibility. As expected, her work with the UN presented numerous challenges. During the first meeting in January of 1946, Eleanor found herself as the only woman in the American delegation. She often felt unwelcome and sensed that her presence was not fully appreciated. She understood that if she failed, it would reflect poorly on all women, potentially delaying the opportunity for another woman to serve for years to Yeah, come. right. I mean, what a pressure. Like, that had to be huge pressure on her. Nevertheless, Eleanor confronted the unique obstacles of her position with determination. She noticed the scarcity of women among other delegations as well and took the initiative to invite them for tea in her hotel suite. Oh. Though these... So though these it, were informal gatherings, she discovered that delegates from different countries could make more progress and foster greater understanding in a relaxed setting. Absolutely. Inspired by this realization, Eleanor established a tradition of hosting dinners and social events, bringing together representatives from various nations. Despite her initial fears of inadequacy, Eleanor quickly demonstrated her expertise as her debating skills proved vital during critical questioning at the first meeting. The fate of war refugees stranded in Germany after the war. That was the first meeting. Right. Throughout the 1950s, Eleanor embarked on countless national and international speaking engagements. She continued to pen her newspaper column and made appearances on television and radio broadcasts. She averaged 150 lectures a year through the 1950s. Holy shit. Many devoted to her activism on behalf of the United Nations. That's crazy. She was widely known for her anti-colonial stance. 
In April of 1960, Eleanor was diagnosed with aplasty anemia soon after being struck by a car in New York City. Oh, shit. That doesn't surprise me because people drive like <laughs> New York City. In 1962, she was given steroids, which activated a dormant case of tuberculosis, tuberculosis in her bone marrow. And Holy she, shit. And she died at age 78. Wow. Of resulting cardiac failure at her Manhattan home on East 74th Street in the Upper East Side. On November 7, 1962, she was being cared for by her daughter, Anna. President John F. Kennedy ordered all United States flags lowered to half-staff throughout the world on November 8th in tribute to Eleanor. Funeral services were held two days later in Hyde Park, where she was buried next to her husband in the Rose Garden at Springwood Estate. The Roosevelt family home at... I'm that again. Funeral services were held two days later in Hyde Park, where she was buried next to her husband in the Rose Garden at Springwood Estate, the Roosevelt family home. Attendees included President Kennedy, Vice President Linda B. Johnson, and former Presidents Truman and Eisenhower, who honored Roosevelt. Oh, that's sweet. Her legacy as a tireless advocate for human rights and social justice continues to inspire people around the world. Her life was marked by personal tragedy and hardship, but she overcame these challenges and became one of the most influential figures of the 20th century. Her legacy serves as a reminder of the importance of compassion, empathy, and advocacy for those who are marginalized or oppressed. That's she, crazy. She's bad. She was badass. I was, like, when I told some people I was, I was thinking about doing her, they were like, um, oh, she's pretty cool. Yeah, oh, my gosh. And they, like, tell me little bits of information. I absolutely nothing nothing about I knew her. nothing about her either well, that was interesting like, did we learn about her in, well I didn't listen in school so if we I learned about her I wasn't listening I... number one number two I don't feel like we learned about a lot of women in school in my in my time I don't remember learning about anyone in school um and you know like <laughs> I remember like you know having to write papers and stuff like that but yeah I, I mean I just don't remember any no I'm sure no I mean sure like especially in your day I mean yeah I didn't learn anything about her and I just like all this shit that she did why is it not like I'm hoping some of this stuff's in in history books now. You have to ask Joseph if he what he knows about Eleanor Roosevelt just to see if Yeah. Because sure my god, she was like she was like she had black people coming into the White House yeah. from a like a, you know, a school in that, like the like, 1930s. Yeah, where you know yeah, the south crazy. was like hell no. Right. And she just like thought outside the box. She thought like a human, well, and she had her. passion like a human, yeah. and that's just so important. It and is. I just, she's pretty cool. She she's going to cool. be another really one good. of my favorites so far. Yeah, I mean, you can tell about how much I freaking wrote on her. I know. I mean, I shaved it down today, and Your shaved bush? it down, and shaved it down. My bush. Oh, thank God! I did because yeah. it was really like sticking out it was over the table last the time, and I was like, I know, oh God. Um, no, um, yeah, no. It was it was way more pages. I. It just got up to when I started, like, because I separate it by, like, every couple sentences so it's easier to read. Yeah. And it got, it had gotten up to, like, 26 pages. I'm like, I can't. I can't. <laughs> yeah, we'd be here all night. Especially so, since we started so This late. is probably the longest one we've ever done. But yeah. it's just, I felt like, and honestly, I feel like I, and I was taking stuff out and I'm like, this isn't, this is cool, but it's not, you know, and I feel like there's so much more that I yeah, can Like, I could have done a two-parter on her for Good real. job. Thanks, Give yourself Rose. a pat on the back. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if you like that story, yes, please go rate and review us on Apple yes. or any, um, any platform you listen on. Platforms, rate, uh, review, follow, follow. Yes, yes, and you can follow us on No Ordinary Women Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, TikTok. <laughs> 
I have a hard time with that every time. And then No Ordinary Women Pod. No, on No Ord Women Pod. No Ord. Oh, my fucking God. No Ord Women Pod on Twitter. And then the other three, TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook is No Ordinary Women Pod. And if you want to email us, you can email us at NoOrdinaryWomenPod at gmail.com. Yeah, or you questions. can DM us, slide into DM our DMs. Slide into our DMs. Yeah. Oh, and we have a YouTube channel now. We do have a YouTube channel, you can and just... I'm going to post that tomorrow. Okay. On, um, I'll post it. I'll do it on a, uh, our story, and I'll do it on a post. Okay. And I'll also add it to our highlights. If you go to oh, our, that's a good um, idea. If you go to our Instagram bio, you can see our highlights, which I just realized I forgot to add that cocktail to our highlights, but I'll figure that out. Anyway, so um, that highlights has all of our links to all of our social media, and it also has uh, the cocktails of the week we just started a couple weeks ago on there every week. So um, please, you guys, share us. Let, Let your friends know. Share our posts. Hashtag us. No ordinary, hashtag no ordinary women pod. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. See you next week.